That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 610 with my return guest, the therapist Katie Morton. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I sure I share opinions, thoughts. But let's always keep in mind that uh, for 16 years, I was on basic cable, uh, essentially showing a roadhouse and making chili. So take everything I say with a the, with the grain of salt. I would actually take it with a shaker of salt. And say hi to Jimmy Buffett for me. Oh my God, I hate how this episode is started. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from uh, the Struggle in a Sentence Survey. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Bobby Weir's Jorts. I got to assume she's talking about the Grateful Dead's Bob Weir. Um, she struggles with ADHD, and uh, she says, It's like I'm a sim, and the player keeps canceling my task when I walk into the next room. Oh, that is a great one. Thank you for that. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself, Huh? Question mark. And she struggles with uh, chronic pain and bipolar, too. And what's helped you deal with them? Being honest as fuck to see if I'm crazy or relatable and finding out that I don't struggle alone. What, if anything, have people said or done for you that have helped you with your issues? Uh, and then parenthet- or in uh, quotes, she writes, Oh, my God, I thought I was going crazy. And you feel that way, too? Exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point, end quote. It helped me because way more open about my mental it helped me become way more open about my mental illness and stand up to people who think it's funny to make fun of people who don't have the same problems as them cuz bitch we all got problems don't act like you're not crazy too. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Uh This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this was filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Tinker Man, and he writes, My girlfriend has a rather complicated relationship with her family, especially her dad. I would classify a lot of his actions as narcissistic, and he's very insensitive. A lot of the time when she's with him, he will say something that really hurts my girlfriend. To my knowledge, he's never done anything physically, but he can be very emotionally abusing. 
he will say things like nobody cares about him, hint at him not wanting to live, that life is meaningless, threaten my girlfriend to cut contact between them, and just make insensitive, hurtful comments that make my girlfriend cry. He has never taken any responsibility for his actions and would never apologize for anything he has said. Uh, he would never consider seeing a therapist or get any sort of help. Uh, he has no boundaries. Um, I'm just fast forwarding here a bit. Uh, it's gotten to the point where I sat down with her and her mom to talk about it. And I was surprised at how much the mom defended him and tried to make it Well, she's been doing it their entire marriage. Probably, uh, this situation affects me as well. Well, how could it, how could it not? My girlfriend will often call me crying after something her dad's done. She's called me in a panic after her dad has threatened leaving her and on her birthday, uh, her dad had said some very insensitive things that made her cry. I love her and try my best to be there and comfort her. We have good communication and have talked about uh, the situation and how it affects me and how it affects us. The thing is, I'm a very sensitive person and have recently realized how I struggle with codependency. I have a hard, hard time separating my stuff and her stuff and get very emotionally involved in all that's going on with her family. Uh, I've had the urge so many times to contact her mother and to talk to her or even scold her, letting her know how this type of emotional abuse is not okay. Uh, but I've stopped myself every time, trying not to act out of anger, but the situation is not getting better. And I feel so totally hopeless and unable to do anything but watch the person I love suffer and suffer with her. I really don't know what to do in this situation. I don't want to talk too much about it with my family or friends since I don't want it to change their views of her and also to be respectful to her. But that leaves me in a very frustrating position. When she calls, I worry that she will call me crying because he hurt her emotionally, not physically. When she's with her parents and I'm not around, I'll go, ar I'll go around and worry about her well-being and worry that something will happen. It might be good to add that I'm dealing with my own fair share of anxiety and tend to worry about a lot of stuff, which makes it even harder to know when or if I'm just worrying too much. Is it okay for me to intervene, to call or text the mom, being very upfront about how this is not okay? Um, I don't think it is. Any of any of your, your business, um, how the mother treats the girlfriend, I think your girlfriend is an adult and it is up to her to decide whether or not to stand up to her mom. You're, and these are just my opinions, but where it begins is when you are in the room with that mother. If you don't like the way she's speaking to somebody, to say, I'm leaving now because I don't like your tone of voice or you're being disrespectful or abusive. But trying to control how two other people interact with each other is a recipe for fucking crazy, especially when there's narcissism and codependency uh, in those in those people. And, and honestly, probably within ourselves as, as, as well, because I relate to a lot of what you're, you're, you're talking about, not necessarily with my current girlfriend, but just people in the past that, that, that I've had. And I've been almost every, every character in this uh, thing, maybe not the dad so much, but uh, your other question is, how can I be supportive of my girlfriend and at the same time take care of myself? Well, you talked about the dad not having any boundaries. It's time for you to set boundaries. And to begin that, I think you have to ask yourself, what do I want? What kind of relationship would I 
like to have with my girlfriend. And then say, okay, what needs to happen for that to happen? Well, it might start with you not getting sucked up into that drama. And I think you have to be willing, I think we all have to be willing in any relationship to walk away from it if if it's untenable, if it's dragging us down emotionally and mentally. And I think that is where it becomes your issue. I think her stuff with her mom is her issue. If she's coming home from, from a visit with her mom and she's in a terrible mood, address the fact that she's in a terrible mood. It's up to her to decide whether or not that's connected to her relationship with her mom or or her dad. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I highly, highly recommend um, getting into a support group for, for codependency because, um, you know, her father, it, it, it's really no different than, than alcoholism. It's still dysfunction. And the family system, it's never just the alcoholic or the, you know, quote unquote, uh, you know, uh, disastrous person in the relationship uh, they affect everything and everybody adjusts usually in sick ways to accommodate that person to make excuses for them and then we go about the rest of our lives not realizing that we're still acting out that play that we were taught and that role that we learned as a as a kid and then we wonder why we get into dysfunctional relationships that have all the hallmarks of what we went through as children. So I hope that, uh, I hope that helps. Um, this is an email that I got from squirting school partner and the subject is, can any girl squirt question mark? Um, I hesitate to send you this, uh, like coconut water, turmeric and coronavirus squirting is having its moment. You know, I'm glad that you said that and first of all, I want to thank you for saying that you hesitated to send this because I appreciate any email, but when somebody is thoughtful and considerate and can put themselves in my shoes uh, before they send an email, that, that just, it, it means a lot to me. Um, squirting is having its moment like coronavirus. I was talking to a, a female friend of mine and she had just lost her father to coronavirus and she said... I felt like I just fire-hosed a picture off the wall. Continuing. She can't do it by herself. Vibrators won't hit the mark. That's one big reason, and now this is in bold, bold letters. She needs you and your jackhammer. Now, I don't know what she's heard. My girlfriend is not the gossipy type, but I do make a lot of noise in the bedroom. And there is a lot of dust. There's a lot of plastic sheeting. And I will usually set up uh, you know, some, some type of scaffolding directly outside the window. So maybe that's how you heard about it. When you show her the way, she'll become addicted to you for life. Now that is, even though I'm in a relationship, that is hard to resist. Because the two things I look for in women is one physically hard to please and two clingy that's a double banger right there and then there's a link to click on i haven't decided whether or not to to click on this one um 
And I'm thinking I should, even though the last time I clicked on a link that mentioned squirting, um, my bank account went to negative $4 million. But this one, I don't know, there's something about it that seems safe. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I've been using them for, for years. And one of the biggest things that I get out of therapy, other than feeling heard and seen and, and, and validated, is just getting into the nitty-gritty problem-solving. And uh, through therapy, I've learned many, many tools that, that help me. I really enjoy the relationship I have with my therapist, Heidi. I trust her. And uh, she gives me great feedback. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists anytime. So when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. And uh, make sure that you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then uh, finally, this is a uh, struggle in the sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself cracked and confused about her dyspraxia. She says, tripping over the only hole in a cornfield. Uh, about her bipolar disorder, a devil of despair cloaked in a rabid raccoon suit. And about her ADD, losing your phone and finding it in the fridge. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt push it all down you can't go around it Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk through is the only path no one is ever alone there's somebody else out there don't forget experiencing the same thing as you that the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them will one day be your greatest strength 
and when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Ah, you're in the right place. I'm here again with Katie Morton, uh, who's been a guest previously on the podcast. Uh, you're a licensed marriage and family therapist, a very popular YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. You help a lot of people. And uh, so many things that we're going to talk about today that I think will really, really help people. And um, a lot of them are from a, a book that you have out called Are You Okay? And some of the things that you cover in the book, which are such common questions that listeners have, what's the difference between uh, mental health and mental illness? What kind of mental health provider do I need? A psychiatrist, a psychologist, etc. What should I expect from my first therapy a- appointment? How do I know if my therapist is good or bad? Uh, you know, do I need medication? Stuff like that. Um, you cover a lot of things in this book. So one of the things I'd like to do is just kind of go through it and um, ask you to elaborate on some of the things that, that you talk about. Um, in, a, in a broad sense, um, how, how common are mental illnesses? They're very common, actually. Um, I think the general statistic is one in five mm-hmm. are affected, which to me means that everybody is because that means we know someone or we've been in relationship with someone who has a mental illness. Yeah, and, and it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, and everything is a dynamic, a give and a take. So it's it's like thinking that alcoholism only affects the alcoholic. Exactly, and that'd be so short-sighted, right? There's so It's like such a ripple effect. Some of the uh, things that you list as signs of depression really, uh, to me, are so spot on. Feeling like you're walking through water, everything is harder, and you feel like you're moving so much slower. Slower. Reading and rereading the same thing. Concentration is very hard to come by. Everyone around you is just so freaking irritating. Uh, You can't help but replay everything you have ever done wrong in your life. I think a lot of people would be surprised to think that this is linked to depression. So talk about that. Yeah, I think um, think the problem is we think of depression as sadness, Mm -hmm. which that's one part of it, but it's a multi, as as we know, people are multifaceted, right? So it's a multifaceted illness. And I think the like walking through water and the concentration are the things that are often overlooked because we think, oh, I'm just stressed or, oh, I should just do it again. Or, you know, and then it's like that self-hate gets louder and louder and it makes it worse and worse instead of us, you know, recognizing that, hey, my brain used to work better than this. What's going on? We just think it's more personal. Like we've done something. I'm too stressed. I work too hard or I need to sleep better or whatever. Or we blame other people, right? Maybe they cause this. So I think that that's why it's, it's almost not like miss, like it's not like people are, misdiagnosing or talking about it incorrectly it's just they're not giving you the full picture the full spectrum and so many things overlap trauma addiction Mm -hmm. toxic relationships you know what's situational uh situational depression what's clinical depression and that's why i'm such a believer in just throwing as many solutions at it as you as you can Uh, is there kind of a list of you know what you should try first let's say uh, let's talk about the person who 
is just feeling so unmotivated. The things that they used to take pleasure in, um, they're not taking pleasure in. Maybe, you know, they're finding something that is soothing and they're just working the shit out of it. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. binging on Netflix and not in a healthy kind of I'm going to reward myself, uh, but in a escapist kind of way. What What's the flow chart of that person reaching out? I mean, it always takes us a while to realize something's wrong. That's usually the longest runway we have. So it'll be, it could be years. But once we know something's wrong, the flow chart of it really goes to figuring out like who we need to see. So in the book, I kind of break down like, what's a psychiatrist? Okay. So if I think I might need medication. So that really would be like if um, you feel like you're drowning in the symptoms, like for someone to tell you to go for a walk, they might as well just tell you, you know, to become a concert pianist and you've never played the piano. You're like, that's not going to happen. And so if that's the level that we're at, we're going to potentially have to think about trying medication. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no shame in that. I think people put a lot of stigma on that. But would you be mad if someone told you to take an Advil because you have a headache? Right. Or, you know, yeah. do we tell people that take insulin for diabetes that if they just smiled more, yeah. uh, their sugar level would come right? back? If they just, I mean, the number of things people say, you should smile more, you should go to church, you should pray more. Like, yes. let's be honest. Yeah. Um, there's more going on than that. But so that's kind of the start is like figuring out what level of care you need and what kind of care. Mm-hmm. And then honestly, the best way to find a good provider is to word of mouth, like talk to your friends. But if you don't have friends that talk about it, because most of us don't, um, insurance is the best way just to make sure it's feasible financially for you. They'll give you a list. And I always encourage people just to go online because most therapists will have some kind of website. You'll at least get to see a photo of them. You can read the text, you can get a feel. And if you get a good feeling, then we should call. Mm-hmm. And nine out of 10 times, you're going to leave a message. Um, and I kind of even break this down in the book, like what kind of what you have to prepare for the message, because some people just hang up. They're like, oh, oh, I don't know what to say. Right. So keeping it very simple, you know, like if I was calling in for depression, I'd be like, hi, my name is Katie. Um, you know, I'm 35 years old. I'm struggling with what I think is kind of sadness, depression. Um, I have such and such insurance. And I was hoping to have to see you on Tuesdays and Thursdays anytime after 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, call me back. Here's my number. And that's kind of it. How about the person who doesn't have insurance or, you know, the wait list for their insurance is 90 days and they're just feeling like, oh, my God, I I can't bear another week of this. I think, um, first of all, nobody will ever shame you for being the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. So keep com- like complaining, keep calling your insurance. And if they do, fuck them. Yeah, right. Because we all have a voice and we need to use our voice and no one's going to advocate for you like you'll advocate for yourself. So be loud and talk about it. Um, but there are things that you can do today. Like there are things that we can all do, like take a shower. I know that that can seem like so difficult, but you know, muster all your energy. I don't care if it's 5 p.m. I don't care if it's 10 p.m just try to take a shower. Cause I swear to God that can like change your whole like mm-hmm. outlook on that day. Um, calling a supportive friend, even if you haven't been in touch, maybe shoot out a text that just says, Hey, how are you? Um, they're also like crisis text line is a great resource. I work with them a lot. Um, it's seven, four, one, seven, four, one. You can just text hello and someone can be there to talk with you. Say that one more time. It's the crisis text line. And the number is seven, four, one, seven, four, one. You just text that number. Yeah. To that number, mm-hmm. and you can just anything you type, you can just say, "I I need to talk" or "Hi." Yeah, or, hi, hello. I'm mm-hmm. having issues with Siri. Can you mediate? 
Exactly. Whatever you want. <laughs> Hopefully when it's like you're feeling down because they're there to help you if you're feeling, I don't know, if you're having any kind of crisis, not feeling like yourself. And they're trained crisis counselors 24-7. So I don't care if it's three in the morning. I don't care what time it is. You can reach out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're only available. I just want to say this so that everybody knows it's in the U.S. and Canada. Okay. Um, if if you've ever been a uh, victim of unwanted sexual uh, contact or violation, uh, the Rape and Incest National Network, uh, I know is a good resource, org, and it doesn't matter how long ago uh, the incident or incidents happen. Um, NAMI.org is a good place to research. Uh, another great website is uh, HelpGuide.org. Yes, I've I've read them. Like when I'm trying to better understand a situation or a diagnosis, you know, what can I? What are the layman's terms I can put it in? They really break it down in a nice yeah. way. I agree. And also, there's um, Seven Cups dot com mm-hmm. uh, there's also an app um they will connect you with a therapist if you want and you can pay for that and it is cheaper than like in person um because it's over skype right um but they also have like trained crisis counselors that will just chat with you so if that's what you need that can get you through too it's awesome uh the next thing i have is very professional of me i love that it's dog-eared yes. yeah that makes me feel good <laughs> um playing the roles in our, in, our, in our lives. I love this kind of analogy and the way of viewing the family dynamics and some of the questions you have people ask themselves are, are you a leading actor in your family play or do you have a supporting role? Do you have a lot of speaking parts? Why or why not? What do you do first when you're really upset and feel out of control? When you were growing up, was it okay to be mad or sad? How did your parents respond? If something was going on in your home, did you feel free to talk about it? Are there things about you, those closest to you, say they love? What are the things that they don't like? Um, can you expand on on some of those things? Yeah, I think we. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I think we we definitely play roles in our lives without realizing it. And if anybody is familiar with like the family dance where there's like one person who starts the dance and we all follow in their footsteps, especially if you're talking about like an alcoholic family. Yeah. Um, the alcoholic tends to run the show, which is kind of ironic, but people don't realize that. And they all fall in line. And um, I remember when I was, I mean, I've been in groups myself. Um, I also have run groups. And I think it's really interesting when you recognize that people in groups will even fall into those roles without mm-hmm. realizing it. It's so comfortable. And when we learn new skills, we're bumping against them. It's like if someone's doing the polka and you're trying to do, I don't know, uh, square dancing. Right. You're going to run into each other. It doesn't work. And so that's, I think, just realizing like what your role in your family is, is really tricky. Cause if you ask people straight up, what's your role? They're like, I don't know. I mean, I'm the sister or I'm the daughter, I'm right. the husband, I'm the whomever, but I'm like, no, like that's why I kind of broke it down that way. Thinking of like writing a play, like, mm-hmm. are you the main, are you the lead? Cause that's my way of saying like, do you start the dance moves or does right. someone else? Right. Uh, are, is, is the majority of the drama in the family emanating from you mm-hmm. or are you the the child who is on the sidelines feeling like they have to be perfect because you, you don't want your parents to be burdened with any more problems exactly um are you the one uh you know let's say the the father's an alcoholic and the mother 
becomes enmeshed with kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe she looks to them for emotional support. Then yeah. are you, do you become your mother's caretaker? Yeah. Um, or are you the one that resents her for, you know, smothering you? Exactly. And I think in order to get into that level of understanding, we have to, I'm sure everybody has been in therapy knows this, we have to like sneak it in. It's almost like sneaking vegetables to children. Yes. <laughs> you yes. like have to sneak in therapy in a way that's easy to hang on to because you're mm-hmm. like oh do i speak a lot in my family do i have a speaking role am i the one that talks the most mm-hmm. or not am i the silent one trying to keep everything perfect and not be a burden um and so that's just kind of my way of having people hopefully see their dynamic in a new way um and hopefully it like opens up new yeah. thoughts new yep. conversation because if you don't know the dynamic how do you find the best tool yeah for it exactly and in therapy we use all sorts of terms nobody understands like if i just said what's the family dynamic or what's your family dance people would be like what that doesn't make any sense look at me like i have three eyes <laughs> top five things i love about myself and my life i can't imagine how difficult this would be for some people just starting out mm-hmm. um talk i'll read the uh, four things that you wrote underneath it. And these are examples. I love my work. It allows me to reach people all over the world. Uh, My husband, uh, Sean, is my consistent comfort. Uh, I am thankful for my determination. It allows me to finish what I need to finish. Uh, I love where I live. Southern California has beautiful weather and amazing outdoor activities. What is important about doing that, listing things that you love about your life or yourself? Our brain tends to seek out threat. It's kind of a survival mechanism. So it looks for negativity, which people don't think about in that way. But if you think about like caveman days, that kept us alive, right? Right. I can tell that's threatening. I don't like it. It's bad. Stay away. But now we seek out negativity in that same fashion and we hold on to it instead of recognizing all that we have. Like sometimes I'll even tell my patients if they're having a really rough time, I'm like, be thankful for your feet. Be thankful for your eyes be just the basics. I can breathe today. I have a roof over my head. And I know that people can say like, oh, well, that's not as, I don't feel that as much. It's not like real things I'm grateful for, or it's not things that I really love. Like I don't love anything, you know, Mm -hmm. but just starting there and being grateful for the things that we have as small as they may be can really change our perspective. And instead of our brain seeking out threat and negativity, it'll start looking for and seeking out positive things. And I completely agree. And the thing that I think people misconstrue is sometimes they think that that, those thoughts are to be used to minimize pain or struggle we have in our lives, Mm -hmm. to negate those. And it's, it's, it's not. No. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's something that we all have to learn that they're good and bad can exist at the same time. And that's why I love like uh, for parents and for people out there, like doing the peak and pit of your day Mm -hmm. is good. It's great for children to learn. Like if I was young, I wish my parents had done this where you talk about like the best thing in your day and the worst thing. And you know that it's okay to have them both. And they both happened in the same 24 hour, you know, period. And that's okay. And so it's okay to be grateful. It's also okay to feel bad and to have pain and to have trauma that you're trying to overcome. But that doesn't mean that it can't coexist with wonderful things yeah appreciating a sunrise or Mm -hmm. warning signs to look for um when you need help Mm -hmm. what are what are some of the warning signs 
I mean, there. I could go through a whole list of yes. how nitty gritty we wanted. Yeah, to get, just but, hit us with with some few, uh, you know, some common ones. Yeah, I think like we're talking about showering, for instance. If it's really hard for you to take care of your basic hygiene, that's one of the first things as a therapist that I notice. Like if patients come, even if they make it to session, if their hair looks greasy and their clothes don't look washed. That's a concern of mine. That means they're not functioning. Depression has a smell it to does. it. It really does. Yeah. Unwashed clothes smells so like like trauma. oil. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of my, uh, especially abuse victims who've been in a sexually abuse situation, will do that as a way to keep people away. Yeah. And we talked about that. But so, so not keeping up with your hygiene is a sign. Not being able to handle what you normally can handle, which is going to be different for everyone. We're not comparing ourselves to like Elon Musk. <laughs> We're comparing ourselves today to how we were yesterday or to how we were a month ago. Um, so getting to work on time or, you know, keeping up with schoolwork, whatever we're up to, we're, we should be able to still maintain that for the most part. Uh, one of the things that I, I can't remember who shared it, might have even been a listener that said one of the, their signs that they know the difference between depression or, you know, quote, being lazy is that do I still enjoy the things that give me pleasure. And if Mm, they don't, mm -hmm. then they know that's depression. Yeah. And that's one of the like markers of depression is we call anhedonia, but it's like not enjoying things you used to. And for me, my sign of essentially when I need to get back in therapy is that I'm just tearful. I could cry at a commercial. I only need like 20 seconds to tap in because I'm so full of everything. And so it's kind of um, taking you know, taking into account the signs we're talking about, but then feeling it for you. When do you know you need more help and when things aren't quite as good as they used to be? Are you comfortable kind of walking us through then what happens when you go in into a, a session where you're the client mm-hmm. and you're crying a lot to kind of walk us through what gets uncovered, you know, uh, how it's processed? Is there an end result, etc.? Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm always a crier. I almost mm-hmm. always cry in session. Um, and it, feels good it's like a release and i think people don't talk enough about how tears are really therapeutic oh, it's the best you don't even have to ugly cry just tears coming out actually releases hormones and makes you feel better yeah it's like scientifically proven i forget what hormones but just trust me google it yeah. um and so i think for me i definitely get that release and i feel really tired after but it's because i have a good relationship with my therapist and the office feels like safe like it can hold all that i've been stuffing and I think at first I always am like, I don't even know if I'll be able to talk. I'm just going to cry. And I don't know if I'll get any benefit out of this, but that's never the truth. And, uh, you know, I always get something out of it. I always leave with homework. I always leave with insight and felt heard and understood. One of the things that, that I've noticed happens a lot is... I'll think, oh, why did I schedule therapy this week? I don't need to talk about anything. Those mm-hmm. are always the weeks that something comes up that I haven't really dealt with that I really needed to talk about. Same. Isn't it funny? It's like our brain it, like our brain plays tricks. It thinks yeah. that like, oh, you don't have anything to talk about. No, you're going to be fine. I don't know. What a waste of money and time. You shouldn't have done this. Yeah. And I feel like it's almost like the negative me inside being like, no, we want to keep this for ourselves. Don't let her get better. We have to hold this in. It's like the uh, the alcoholic family dynamic of mm-hmm. don't let the neighbors know. Dad's drinking. Yep. Um, put on the brave face. Yeah. Let's- Instead of really tapping in and, and knowing it's okay to feel how you feel. Yeah. Talk about the differences between... Um, you know, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a licensed um, counselor, stuff like that. Yeah, that actually I had to do a lot of research to make sure that I got that correct, because 
they they are so similar. So no wonder everybody's confused because there's right. so many acronyms and nobody knows what those letters mean. And so a psychiatrist, I'll start from the top and kind of work my way down. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor. That means they can prescribe medication. Most psychiatrists don't do therapy anymore, but some do just ask, yeah. but a lot of them just manage your medication. How, any side effects this month? They see you usually once a month for like 15, 20 minutes. They're not usually warm. That doesn't mean all of them aren't warm, but right. I always have to prep my patients to be like, they might not be nice. You might not like them, but just make sure you bring your list of how the medication's affecting you. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll have you take a, uh, you know, a little quiz. Uh, what has what your mood been mm-hmm. the last uh, couple of weeks? Have you been on a scale from one to five? Have you had suicidal thoughts? You've been able to enjoy the things you normally do. And, um, you know, the thing about uh, talk therapy and, and psychiatrists, I, I haven't heard many people share that they have had a psychiatrist that was awesome at talk therapy. And while there might be some chatting in the session about how are things, Mm -hmm. it doesn't delve deep the way it does with a talk therapist. Yeah. And I feel like the dynamic is just different. The relationship is different. Um, And also, I know that psychiatrists that are being trained now are not being trained to do talk therapy. So just something to think about. So ask. And they also are way more expensive, too. So if that's an issue, which for all of us, we're on a budget. Um, So that's what a psychiatrist is. Then we can t- like move down into psychologist, which is when someone has a doctorate, um, meaning they have four years of education versus I have two. So a master's, um, at, like after your four-year undergrad, you move into your graduate program. Yeah. So um, they tend to do talk therapy just like me. Um, a lot of them are trained to give assessments, kind of um, like Paul was saying about filling out those different you know criteria, like how what's my mood been am i suicidal they can test a lot of them can test for like autism adhd um things like that they tend to work in schools as well because Mm -hmm. of that um but they're for any regular person who's not looking for assessments or anything like that they're the same as a therapist and as a counselor and that's kind of in the book i kind of break it down that like then we get into marriage and family therapists like myself yes i see individuals that's just the title of my degree um Social workers, very much the same. Um, they do tend to work in like hospitals and everything like that. But um, and then licensed professional clinical counselors, um, same. We all have two year master's degrees in our particular like uh, social work, you know, LMF, like marriage and family therapy and counseling. I have tons of friends who are both of those and are we were I don't know why that's not the same program. It's like yes. almost exactly the same. And then we gather hours and we get licensed, all of us. Um, so there's really not that big of a difference. What I always tell people is don't worry about the letters after their name. Worry about how you feel when you're with them. Do they feel, do you feel like they're on your side rooting for you, that they're engaged with you? And do you feel like they're able to help you like with what you, you're asking? Do they seem knowledgeable? Yeah, do That's your feelings really feel validated? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the nurse practitioner. Oh, yes. A nurse practitioner. Um I think in the book, it was the, was it a license? It was a nurse, a uh, psych nurse. Psych nurse. Yes. Okay. So I worked with those um, psych nurses, which are wonderful in the hospital setting and they can have private practices. But the cool thing about a psych nurse is you kind of get a combination of like a psychiatrist meets a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that they can offer different insights based on that because they have knowledge of medication. Now they're not a doctor. Some can prescribe medication, depends on the state. That mm-hmm. can get really confusing. Um, but they definitely have a clear understanding of psychotropic medication, meaning antidepressants, antipsychotics, all of that, as well as all of the stuff that I learned in school. Because what those nurses did is they 
became an RN and then they went back to school to learn about psychology so that they could do talk therapy and stuff like I do. Oh, I gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and then talk about the various modes of therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, and most therapists pick and choose. Um, I think I start out by talking about psychoanalytic theory, which is just garbage. And that's I'm, from Freud, right? Yes. Yes. That's like, you know, it's all from your mother and you want to have sex with your mother and, you know, all sorts of ridiculous things. But if you think about it, he's just like the grandfather of psychology and psychiatry. And so it had to start somewhere. Right. So at least it got us talking about it. Um, so nobody does that anymore. And I know I'm probably pissing people off by saying right. that, but it therapy should not take years and years and years. And you shouldn't look away from your therapist. There should be connectivity. I think the human connection is really lost in that. Um, but the most important one, and that's kind of the cliche. You're sitting on the couch, staring at the ceiling, mm -hmm. and he's he's sitting across the room, smoking a pipe, exactly, with patches on his elbows. Yeah, tell me more about that. Yeah, right. exactly. No, now it's more like you're on a cozy couch. I'm in a big overstuffed chair, and we're just having a conversation. Right. Um, so, so that's like where it was born out of. But I think the more important ones to know are CBT, which stands for cognitive behavioral therapy, and that is really the it's really research driven. It can be proven that it works. So most um, insurances and EAPs, meaning uh, employee assistance programs, those are things that are given to you through your work, uh, means free therapy. Yay. Um, they always cover CBT treatment because it's something that we can track. Um, and CBT, what it really means is that your thoughts become your beliefs, your beliefs become your actions, and we go round and round and round. And so Really what you do in CBT work is try to figure out what the core beliefs are, like I'm not worthy or I'm not lovable. Um, and we try to challenge those so that we can get them to be, I could be worthy sometimes. Mm -hmm. I might be lovable to one person and move from there into a more positive. We call those irrational you know, beliefs, obviously, but they're really... We can believe them wholeheartedly. So you should go to challenge those. And is this a part of the rewiring of the brain? Yes. Um, and it's part of just, it's definitely like neuroplasticity is what kind of mm -hmm. rewiring, like learning new ways to talk to yourself and new ways to understand your story mm -hmm. and, you know, know that you can change the narrative at any time. So negative thought patterns can kind of become well-worn grooves that take time and effort to reroute. Mm -hmm. It's the reason that you always want to go back to that unhealthy habit. When things get really stressed, you'd be like, oh, I wish I could just shop right now, or I wish I could just have that drink, or whatever it may be. But you know better, but your brain is still learning. Yeah. It's like when you pick up a guitar for the first time, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know where your hands go. You don't know how to make it work, but then you slowly get easy. It gets easier and easier. And so you just have to stick with it. Gotcha. Uh, what are, what are, uh, talk about dialectical behavior therapy. Oh, yeah. So DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, is something that I practice a lot. Um, and it's really CBT. So we're taking those kind of thoughts, actions, um, beliefs, and we're pairing it with some mindfulness, which really just means, I know people are using that word a lot, but it really just means that I'm being mindful of how I feel emotionally and how I experience that in my body. So we're just mm -hmm. kind of checking in. And then it also is um, adds in the component of emotion regulation, because a lot of us can feel like our emotions run the show versus us running them. And so DBT allows, it gives you tools so that you can recognize it. You can be mindful. I recognize this emotion. I felt this before and I know it will pass. And it gives you tools to better manage that versus like flying off the handle or getting really depressed or, you know, doing some self-harm behavior. 
Right. And uh, it's found to be a good tool for people with uh, borderline personality disorder, or as it's now called, emotional dysregulation uh, disorder, um, because it was created by Marsha Linehan, mm-hmm. who uh, later came out and said that she has a borderline personality uh, disorder. Um, why is it good for that? Why is it a good idea for somebody who might have BPD to uh, seek that out or the loved ones of someone yeah, who I, has BPD. And I really think it can help any of us, to be right. honest. We can all use a little bit of emotion regulation and more mindfulness. But specifically for BPD, um, because I treat that mostly in my practice and in most of my trainings and everything, um, those with borderline personality disorder are, I believe, really misunderstood. We call them like emotional burn victims. It's usually born out of trauma, and we don't really know how to cope with all that we feel. And so any kind of slight, any harsh comment, anything that kind of hurts a little is like extremely painful and we don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to cope. And so instead of what, you know, people without BPD would do would be, oh, you know, whatever, they're just a jerk or Mm -hmm. moving on, you know, stuff it down. Even those of us who don't have other coping skills might just be like, I just can't deal with that now. Move on. But someone with BPD feels completely hurt, pained to the point where they will either lash out at the person you know, tell them where to shove it. I don't need this. Or they will like completely disengage mm-hmm. because people with BPD usually come, it, um, haven't had like healthy attachment growing up. Meaning I know if I cry, mom's going to come or dad's mm-hmm. going to come or a caregiver right. and they're going to soothe me. And so it's almost like, because we miss that soothing as a child, we still don't know how to do it as we get older. Uh, and I've heard that with borderline personality disorder, a very common, uh, core fear is the fear of abandonment. Mm-hmm. That I'll be alone and no one will ever love me. And so the acting out behavior is often a response of dealing with that and, and the, just kind of an impulsive thought that the, this will protect me. This yes. will keep me safe. Or my emotions are so intense right now, I, I feel like I can't control mm-hmm. what what is happening. Talk about, for instance, um, some of the physical tools that they use, like with ice. Yeah, um, because self-injury comes along with this a lot because they feel so intensely. Like you're saying, like, I have so much emotion inside. I feel so much pain. How do I deal with this? Um, so self-injury is very common, but something that can definitely be dealt with and you can overcome it. Um, but to that end, people will squeeze ice. They'll snap rubber bands. They'll pinch themselves. Um I've heard of throwing ice at the uh-huh. at the oh, bathtub. Yeah, that's a yeah. oh, that's a great tool. Yeah. I'll have to use that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anything to kind of express all that you're feeling, we could even get into like screaming in the car, screaming into a pillow, um, all of the things we know to get that out. Mm-hmm. But for them, it's very physical because it like they feel it in right. themselves as part of themselves, and so there's a lot of like body work that needs to be done, which I know sounds really hokey pajokey or woo woo, but um, I I don't think so because it's it's uh, they need a release one way or the other. Yeah. And yelling at people and saying, you know, I'm cutting you out of my life uh, might not be the best solution in mm-hmm. that. Well, it's almost self-sabotage if you think about it. If we're so afraid of being alone, but then we end up pushing everybody away until we are, right. and then they're unhappy. And I mean, I think that's why I say they're really misunderstood because people are like, oh, they're so angry and aggressive. And I'm like, no, they're just in pain. Yeah. And as soon as you take a minute to listen... They're a whole different person. They just don't feel heard. Uh, they tend to be highly intelligent, mm-hmm. very sensitive, um, compassionate. Mm-hmm. 
because they yeah. know how it feels. They're really right. empathic. It's it's so the more we can understand that, and the more tools we have to better manage all that can come up. Um, DBT is really great with that. Uh, I've heard of some law enforcement people taking DBT training to help de-escalate because it's a great form of communication and, and validating what that person is feeling. Yeah. So that you know they don't get stuck in that you don't understand. Uh, you know, so, so I guess that the conversation can move forward. Okay. It's established. I hear what you're saying. You're feeling very frustrated right now. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Let me, uh, let's work on solving this together. You know, put the, put the gun down. That's so cool. It makes sense. I never, that's awesome that they're using that. Yeah. Cause it mm-hmm. does help you connect with people so that you're both understood. Yeah. Uh, any other, uh, modalities? I mean, there's a lot, uh, just because we're talking about DBT and BPD. Um, somatic experiencing is something. I don't know if I talk about it in the book. I'd have to... like Hugely important in my life. Yes, because about the body, right? Yes. Um, people talk about how exercise can be so helpful therapeutically for them. And that's because it's a movement of your body. And there's uh, Peter Levine, I think is his name. He's the pioneer of it. Yes. yes. And like, if you look up like what he's learned in the research in cellular memory... I mean, there's been these crazy stories from my viewers and my patients alike that when they talk about certain things like handprints can come back up where they were grabbed um, and it can it's like imprinted on our in our cells and in our body. And so people tell you that body memories don't exist. Oh, bullshit. They're, uh-huh, they're full of shit. They, they do. And we feel them and they're real. And somatic experiencing can kind of help you use movement and checking in with your body as a way to heal. Uh, talk about EMDR. Oh yeah. EMDR. Um, it's essentially, and what does it stand for? Eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Perfect. Thank you. Um, the it's, you can use tappers and it's bilateral stimulation. So we're moving, we want to move from left to right brain over and over. We want to stimulate both parts of your brain. And this is really a way to create new pathways and help heal from any past trauma, hurt, upset. Even people I was reading recently, people even use it to overcome addiction and to heal the way that their brain has like associated pain with doing this. Like this happens and this is my coping skill. This is what I do. Hmm. Um, I don't know. It wasn't like there's no post hoc analysis. So we'll wait to see if more research comes out. But to get that bilateral stimulation, there's buzzers in your hands, mm-hmm. or you can put headphones on that do beeps in your left and right ear, and it kind of goes from left to right, beep, beep, or buzz, buzz, yeah. or a therapist can touch you if you're okay with that. Most of my patients aren't, but mm-hmm. some people are, um, like one, like a left knee, right knee, back and forth mm-hmm. as you talk through a difficult or troubling time, and it's really giving your brain another chance to process it. Because if we think of like REM sleep, when you're in your deepest sleep and your brain is processing all it's done that day, that's what we're trying to recreate. We're giving your brain another chance to put that marble of a memory together or that file, log it away appropriately and put it away and be done with it. What about alternately slapping sides of their heads and calling them a baby? That's not, that's abuse. That is. (laughs) I've got to find another... EMDR therapist. <laughs> uh, no, I I had uh, a profound EMDR session where I slept afterwards for almost two days, and my body felt like it had, like I was the Tin Man and I had been oiled. Mm-hmm. It's know, very my normal. joints felt looser. Yeah, it's crazy. That's the thing about like your body. Yes. We feel we hold on to emotional pain in the same way we hold on to physical pain, and we store it, and yeah. you can feel it. 
And so, yeah, a lot of my patients, I always tell people, if you're going to try EMDR, make sure you have nothing going the rest of the day. Yes. Because you may sleep this most sound of sleeps, (laughs) you know, right afterwards. And from what I understand, the uh, experience of the EMDR practitioner is something definitely to factor into it because... um, uh, from from what I'm told, you you don't want to launch immediately into the most traumatic thing that ever happened to that person. You want to kind of, uh, you know, take events that weren't the most intense. Yes. Yeah, I think it is really important when you do EMDR to understand that you don't have to go in and just spill your guts and get to the deepest, darkest, ickiest part of your life. It's first about building up resources. And I don't think people talk enough about this. And I truly think that all of us should build up our resources. And what I mean by resources is really just ways to bring you back to level. So is that calling a good friend where you feel heard, understood? Is that going for a walk? Is that petting an animal? Is that all of those things? What do you do to bring your system down to like baseline so that you feel good? Would that be considered soothing? Yes. Self-soothing. Okay. Anything. I, you can even call it like mothering. Uh-huh. Whatever word works for you. Mm-hmm. Whatever works for you. That's what I call it, like resources. And because we have to build up this big toolbox, we call them tools right. to fill up our toolbox with a bunch of different things so that when we do tiptoe into this icky, I don't like this about myself. I hate that this happened. I'm embarrassed. I'm shameful, like shame filled. I feel really too vulnerable. When we get in there, we need to have those resources to help us. In, internally say it's going to be okay. Yeah. The two, I think of the most common tools that we reach for, which are so unhealthy is we shame ourselves and then we future trip based on mm-hmm. the shaming negative self-beliefs. Mm-hmm. And boy, if there's a way to make yourself stuck and isolated, that is, that is it. I agree. I agree. Um, and so when you get into EMDR, know that you'll build up those resources and then you gradually start. Usually it's just through storytelling about, tell me about this a time in your life when you felt happy. Tell me about one of your favorite vacations. They'll start letting you tell stories. Now I am not an EMDR therapist, um, but I've sat through sessions with patients and I've talked to other, I have uh, friends and colleagues that do it. Um, and then they'll slowly work towards the event meaning it could be abuse. It could be, it could be just neglect as a child. They'll get to that, but don't think you have to go in and just spill your guts. And I, I, I think EMDR and especially somatic experiencing are two and talk therapy are great examples of the importance of having a safe feeling environment for things to be processed. It sounds kind of obvious, but Talk about that if you would. Yeah, I think the most important thing in therapy in general is you need to feel warm and safe and comfortable in the therapist's office, which I know it does sound obvious, but I don't think we take that into consideration. That's why I don't think hospitals, they need to make them warmer. That's been a frustration of mine since I've worked in them like 10 years ago because it doesn't feel like healing to me. It feels cold. It feels, you know, I don't know medical. You want whoever you're sitting down with to share some of the hardest things to talk about. You want them to feel warm, welcoming, and you overall just need to feel comfortable. And that can be in the way their office looks. That can be in the way that they dress. That can be in the amount of eye contact they make with you. There's a lot of things. And I think it's really important that you feel that safety and connection with the person that you are going to do that work with. What are some signs that you are with a therapist that is not good? 
Unfortunately, they're just like any job. There's good ones and there's bad ones. Mm -hmm. And so if they talk about themselves a lot, like if I spend a whole session telling you about my shit, that's what I have my own therapy for. Right. (laughs) I should be seeing my own therapist. What if they open the session with a magic trick? Is that a, would that be a bad sign? (laughs) I mean, if you're into that, maybe it makes you feel included, but usually probably not. Um, and if they forget important things, like if I forgot your name, if I kept calling you Pete, and you're like, yeah. my name is Paul. Like that, how you're already really vulnerable. I just feel like that just call it quits. Um, or if they, um, don't make you feel like a priority, like let's say they're canceling sessions all the time or moving things around, or maybe they forgot you had a session left you in the mm-hmm. waiting room. Like you need to feel like you're somewhat of a priority. Like it's validating. Yeah. And yeah, emergencies happen. Therapists have lives. I know. How dare us. Mistakes but happen sometimes, yes. but is it a pattern? Exactly. We're looking for patterns. Um, and also I think one that is really important is we need to feel, so I guess a bad therapist would make us feel like we have to prove how sick we are because they'll say, they'll use words. It's really important. Therapists out there, we have to pay attention to words like just or only because those are really painful. If you say, Oh, you just have depression or at least it's only an eating disorder. I don't care what it is. Never use those terms. I've heard that loud and clear from my viewers about self injury when talking about that. Oh, it's just a scratch or, Oh, it's only those can be so invalidating and so hurtful. And so you should never feel in therapy. Like you need to prove to them how sick you are. I know some of us have that own, our own internal struggle where we're like, I don't know if I'm sick enough, but that that shouldn't be caused by your therapist doing and saying certain things. That should be something that you work on with them. Right. Because it's not about ranking what it is that you're dealing with. It's about finding a tool to deal with it and process it. So we feel better. 100%. Anything else you'd like to share? Um, when it comes to therapists and good and bad? Anything. Yeah. Anything. I think overall, just letting people know that we're not scary. Therapists aren't scary. It does get better. And I think because my main goal being online in general, and even writing the book is just to educate and empower people. My hope is that people will read this and know that they have all the tools and all the knowledge and all that they need to get better and that it can get better. Sometimes we just need someone to help us point that out. It can be so helpful for me, for my therapist to be like, oh, you, you should probably just scream into a pillow because you're experiencing anger and you're not letting yourself feel it. And it can be really validating and empowering for me to think, oh, I guess I could do that. And then that does make me feel better. So know that it does get better. Therapists are nice people. We're not scary. Um, and sometimes we just need someone to kind of shine a light on something that maybe we aren't able to see ourselves. The book is called, Are You Okay? Uh, Katie, thank you so much. Uh, on social media, people can find you at Katie Morton, K A T I M O R T O N and check out her YouTube channel as well. Uh, there's videos, uh, of her reading listener questions, uh, focusing on certain themes and topics and, uh, yeah, uh, keep up the good work. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Many thanks to, uh, to Katie and we'll put the links to all her stuff under the, uh, the show notes. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Amanda. And uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself that I have to let go of my hopes and dreams in order to not be disappointed? That one, I think, is so prevalent with uh, a lot of us self-sabotagers. Um, you know, it's kind of the version of, you can't fire me, I quit. You know, if I, if I don't put any effort into something, then I don't have to feel the pain of it not working out. And it's such a small way to live, but I've, I've lived that way so many years of my life, and I kind of go in and out of it. And it always feels good when I'm not living in it, but... My God, it's hard to get out of that when you're in that place because fear is is so fucking paralyzing. But you are you are not alone in that one, and thank you for sharing that. This is uh, from the struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself. I don't know if, if it's pronounced Jan or Jan. I guess it depends if uh, if he is uh, in Denmark or not. A snapshot from his life. He writes, "My head is a wasteland of large construction sites." decades behind schedule and way over budget all i have is a folding spade and the work ethic of a lonely tired lovesick teenager and the clock is ticking yawn you must be the resident poet in your land that was so that was so good that was so good thank you for that uh this is from first day in therapy uh survey and this is filled out by uh for some reason, we don't get the uh, people's names on this one. Um, but this is filled out by a guy who's in his 50s. And uh, what brought you to the therapy? I was having panic attacks, but I didn't know what that was. This was in 1999. I think Prince triggered it. Uh, I was in the second semester of my PhD program. I was 33. I had always been depressive, but had never had episodes of panic. Later, I'd find out I'm bipolar and ADD. I also have OCD tendencies, but nothing too debilitating. Any fears associated with starting therapy? I wasn't afraid at all. I needed help, and I was very thankful to be able to see anyone. I started both psychiatric treatment and cognitive behavioral therapy. My fears were related to my work slash study. I thought I was a fraud, and I felt I couldn't do it. I was right in the sense that I didn't have any psych help. I would have failed. That if I didn't have any psych help, I would have failed. Of the fears described, did any of them come true? No. I was able to recover and finish the program. Other things happened due to treatment. I became manic or hypomanic and spent a lot of money. I've never felt so high in my life, but I didn't know that it was mania. It took me an entire summer to realize I was too hyper and that it was not sustainable. I was about 18K in debt by that point. There should be a, a specific bank that we can get money from when we're manic and be very lenient with us paying it back hey look i get it man you were up late it you know who wouldn't buy ten thousand acres in missouri 
as a client, describe what worked best for you in therapy. I remember the therapist being very kind, calm, and reassuring. She was able to see things differently and to actually be open with my advisors about my fears and anxiety. My psychiatrist wasn't very present. Later, when I found out I had bipolar disorder, I felt that she mishandled my case. Anyway, the treatment saved my life but left me in huge debt. Uh, What were your initial impressions of your therapist? Uh, I described my experience above. She was very good and only said things that made me calm down and think more clearly. Uh, Do you feel that you can be completely honest with your therapist? Uh, I can be honest. I'm always authentic, but I don't bring up every issue I have. I don't hide it. If she were to ask me, I think I'd give her an honest answer to the best of my ability, no matter what the subject was. Subject was thank you for filling that out this is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself ugh I think we're related Uh, about her anxiety she writes it feels like static and spikes around my entire body about alcoholism and drug addiction it doesn't even feel good anymore but I need it about her compulsive eating. All the pasta and ice cream in the world will never fill fill that hole in my heart, just my stomach. About her love addiction. I know we just met, but what wedding dress would I look best in? About her PTSD. I star in a horrible movie about all my trauma, and it constantly plays in my mind. About being a sex crime victim. I want their heads on a stick, but that's illegal. About her anger issues. I need a big punching bag. I can't break all my things. Snapshot from her life. Uh, One time, I completely destroyed my phone because it had weak service at a particular area at my job, and it was in front of two of my coworkers. I'm surprised they still speak with me. Thank you for sharing that. And you know what? You might consider getting a, a, a punching bag. I know a lot of people who uh, find it therapeutic. Sometimes it just fucking go in the garage and wail away or wherever you want to store it. Maybe maybe it's right in your front door. Maybe right outside your front door. That'll keep the neighbors from coming by. <laughs> just out there in front of your door just wailing away. Oh, God damn you, Dad! This is from the Fear Survey, and this was filled out by a gender-fluid person who uh, refers to themselves as Rue. And... Uh, They write, I'm afraid that I won't be able to have a child. I'm almost 39 and left my husband to pursue having a family after 10 years of being strung along only to be put in the position of having an unwanted abortion five months ago with my current partner due to finances going to hell in the past nine months. I'm afraid I'll never be the same after the abortion. There is an ocean of sadness in me having to deny and reject the miracle of being pregnant after years of struggling to get pregnant. I had a miscarriage in January and the abortion in April. I'm afraid to tell anyone I had an abortion. My family would disown me, and I'm filled with shame, grief, and deep regret. I am still pro-choice, and I'm in no way implying that regret goes hand-in-hand with each individual's abortion experience. Abortion is an important medical option to have and should, be not, and should not be judged by anyone. 
Only my ther therapist and partner know, and it's really hard to carry this secret while still strongly yearning for a child. It feels like I spit in the face of this higher power I'm trying to grasp. I'm afraid our relationship won't survive my resentment from my loss of motherhood. I'm afraid I'm in an abusive relationship, but because upbringing, uh, my past relationships were so abusive, I can't tell if I actually am. I think she meant to say my upbringing. I'm afraid I'm going to fail at starting over again so late in life. I thought I was being brave by taking a leap forward, manifesting my desires, but I'm afraid I've made too many mistakes to recover ever from them. I'm afraid that because I had an unwanted abortion, I blew my chances of ever getting pregnant again, not medically, but because I felt abandoned by my faith and higher power when I was put in what felt like an impossible position. Uh, I'm in ACA, uh, which is a support group for adult child of uh, alcoholism or dysfunction, and uh, and I'm struggling with the higher power concept. I'm afraid God is punishing and abusive, and it's hard to trust that even my personal concept of a higher power could be unconditionally loving. That's so funny and interesting because that was the exact topic uh, at my support group meeting tonight, which I came from 20 minutes ago. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it can be really hard. You know, we've been, when we've been through the ringer or, you know, if we were raised, raised with a religion that kind of, uh, talked about a punishing God, uh, it's hard to trust something out there in the universe that loves us, especially when we're at our worst. Um, I'm afraid that I don't know what unconditional love feels like, and I wouldn't be able to trust it. I'm, did I read that one already? I'm afraid a pro-life hate group will get my information from the abortion clinic forms and come after me and murder me. I'm afraid that the GOP, a certain former president, and their cronies are going to destroy laws protecting women and people of color. I'm afraid the handmaid's tale isn't far-fetched. Um... Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of strong feelings came up in people uh, as I as I read that. And um, I appreciate you digging deep and, sh and sharing all of that really, really complicated stuff. I'm, I'm sending you a big, big bouquet of of love and good vibes. Have you noticed that with inflation, those bouquets are a little more expensive? This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Nadine, and she writes, I love the moment when I need to step over my old grumpy Pomeranian, and she doesn't even flinch or move a muscle because she knows how much I love, adore, and care for her. When she was a little pup, she used to try to get out of the way. I love that we have developed this trust over time, and as a pup parent, knowing that I've earned her trust. That is fucking beautiful. I love anything that has to do with pets. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Michael, Michael C. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I tell myself that I'm not a man because I'm on disability for mental health reasons. I can't take the mental stress of a long or flexible work week, nor can I multitask. 
I think the latter is due to executive brain dysfunction. Also, I've been living with my dad for four years, and I'm 40 years old. I don't have a car, so he takes me grocery shopping. Moreover, I tell myself I'm not a man because I'm a little overweight and no longer have the buff body buff body of my 20s. Furthermore, I sleep 12 to 14 hours per day, and I feel like I waste a lot of time on my pillow. Uh, these feelings underlie everyone I come into contact with. However, I'm learning to just lower my eyes in public so that my low self-esteem won't be woken up and my baby-like life won't enter the scales of someone else's adult life. I do like math and I'm studying at an online college. This and meditation are the only lifesavers that tell me I'm not a baby, but a valuable, valuable human being just the way I am. Thank you for sharing that, man. Yeah, and I, it's, it's great that you are pursuing a passion that you have because that can go a long way you know that's such a big act of self-care and god self-esteem i i don't know anybody who has ever improved their self-esteem without one of two things self-care and service this is uh from the fears survey and this is filled out by frog lover and she writes, I've struggled with borderline personality disorder for eight years and recently got officially diagnosed. With BPD comes the horrible fear of abandonment. I have been so scared of my current partner leaving that I can't eat and I feel stomach sick from anxiety all day. Thinking too hard about my fear makes me cry whenever I am, uh, wherever I am, whether it's in class or at work. I'm so fucking horrified that he's going to leave me that I'm at a point of near despair every single day. I haven't stopped crying myself to sleep the past few days. Um, I feel so irreparably broken, even though I am medicated and going through DBT. That's awesome that you're doing DBT. That's so huge. Uh, he is so patient and so loving with me, but I can tell he's burnt out. It feels like I have a million years to go uh, before I am healed enough for the suffering to be worth it. I wish I had any other mental illness that isn't BPD. Uh, if it comes true, then I believe I'm definitely going to go batshit crazy. The last time I had an FP, which is a B BPD term for a favorite person, leave me, I scream cried for hours and several nights. I coped with substance abuse. Uh, I coped with substance abuse from drinking to smoking while desperately begging for him to come back. I would have done anything. I couldn't handle being alive in this world without my FP. I had less responsibilities when that happened at age 17, but at 22, I have a job and a college career towards grad school on the line. I fear that I'm going to lose my progress and become a deadbeat who can't even leave their house anymore. For once in my life, I want someone to need me the same way I need them. Wow, that is heavy. That is intense. And from every conversation and everything that I've ever read about people that live with B BPD, is it is intense. It is intense. And the feelings are so hard to bear. You know, somebody described it once that, you know, if we have a, if we feel our feelings on a scale from, you know, one to 10, they feel it on a scale from one to one to a hundred. Um, but just, man, send in your love and, and good vibes and just keep sticking with that 
therapist in that in that D, uh, DBT. Uh, for those of you that don't know, that stands for dialectical behavior therapy. Um, and then finally, we got some uh, some loves. This is filled out by Charlie Seahorse. And they write, I love the sound of boats and ships sounding their horn as they depart their dock. They're perfectly deep bass saying, get the fuck out of my way. Foghorns are pretty cool too, I guess. Love, love, love finding a little hidden beach to just fucking vibe at all day in solitude listening to the sound of waves. I love eating little random pieces of seaweed I find on the beach. It makes me feel like a mermaid. I assume it's safe to do, uh, but I've never checked. So possibly poisoning myself? Question mark. Um, this one might be a little weird, but I love poison ivy. I love the variety of ways it grows. It's terror and macabre allure and the way it commands respect in the environment by requiring you to stop and really think about your moves through the landscape you're in. It might help that I'm not allergic to it, LOL. And lastly, I love when someone I'm crushing on texts me back because holy shit, anyone who has had that feeling knows what I'm talking about. It is a good one. And and I would also add that to that, getting a text back from somebody that you thought was mad at you. <laughs> you realize, and then they're like, oh, I totally forgot to, to text you back. Sorry about the three-day delay. And in that meantime, you've gone over in your head every single thing that you could have possibly done wrong to offend that person. I am going to end things a little differently uh, this week. So uh, here you go. For as long as I can remember, I've always felt a melancholy in early fall. I noticed it a couple of days ago. I laid down to take a nap, and it was late afternoon, and the light was starting to disappear. And I had the window open, and there was this breeze that came in that was somehow warm and cool at the same time. And the grass smelled different than it does in the summer and this melancholy came over me not sadness just a feeling that something was missing I couldn't put my finger on it it's just an emptiness which is so hard to describe it's like trying to talk about fog or writing a novel about something that doesn't exist and there was also something comforting about it because it was so familiar. As long as I can remember, I felt that way in the fall. There's a thing called seasonal affective disorder, which I know I have, but I don't want to do anything about it because <laughs> I kind of like it, which is so fucked up. I've always been drawn to music that reflects that feeling. When I was a little kid, I used to wonder why it felt so comforting to lay on my bed and stare at the ceiling light and listen to the album Revolver by the Beatles, especially the songs Eleanor Rigby and For No One. It felt like those songs were saying to me, I understand. I know what you're feeling. I went to see The Cure a while back and my girlfriend and I had lawn seats. And at first I was like, well, let's move the blanket and let's get closer. And then something inside of me went, why don't you just lay back and look at the sky? 
you know how to do that. And I did. And it felt, it felt so natural. And there was something really comforting in that moment because I felt like I was myself. And while I don't wish that feeling when fall rolls around on anybody, if you wonder why you're laying on your bed staring at the ceiling, feeling that breeze and hearing maybe a dog barking in the distance or a plane going overhead or kids playing and you're thinking to yourself, oh, life is passing me by. Maybe it's not. Stop judging yourself. A lot of us feel the same way. It is what it is. It's fall. It's fall. 